0: welcome to a special ECFR discussion on the future of Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking after what has been quite a busy first half of the year. Against the backdrop of continued deterioration on the ground, we have also seen the publication of the long-awaited US Peace to Prosperity Plan and the slightly less expected UAE-Israel normalization deal. I am joined today by Danny Sederman from Jerusalem. For those who don't know Danny, he is an Israeli attorney and leading expert on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and specializes in the geopolitics of contemporary Jerusalem. He is the founder of Terrestrial Jerusalem, an NGO that works towards a resolution to the question of Jerusalem that is consistent with the two-state solution. Welcome to you, Danny, and thanks for joining us. So let me start off, I suppose, with the most unavoidable question with everything going on. And I'd be very interested to get your take on the UAE-Israel normalization deal. you know, What's your perspective from Jerusalem? And, and what do you think that says about the current moment in which we find ourselves?
1: Normalization came out of nowhere, uh, but it is no surprise. Uh, and it very much dovetails with the policies of Trump and Netanyahu or Kushner and Netanyahu. For years, uh, my take on Netanyahu has been Um, uh, Given time, uh, the world will acquiesce to Israeli hegemony over the West Bank, and the Palestinians will submit. Uh, What we find in the Trump plan, and here I'm speaking specifically Jerusalem, um, uh, is the diminished humanity of Palestinians. Um, the denationalization of Palestinians and the marginalization of uh, the Muslim equities in Jerusalem. Uh, And we've done a detailed analysis uh, on that, uh, of the Trump plan. Now, um, this is a further marginalization of the Palestinians. Um, Most Israelis have received this with a yawn, uh, but... On the other hand, very few are opposing it. I think this is bad for Israel, bad for the Palestinians, and bad for the region, uh, because it cultivates the denial of the Israeli public occupation does not exist. And it uh, cultivates the despair on the Palestinian side, all you enter here, abandon all hope. Uh, It also, uh, if it doesn't shatter, it seriously cracks uh, the Arab Peace Initiative, which is one of the few mechanisms left to begin to address permanent status issues. Within a 20-kilometer radius of where I'm sitting now in Jerusalem, there are 800,000 Palestinians and 800,000 Israelis. Neither of us are going anywhere. One is free and one is occupied. And no normalization uh, agreement is going to change that basic reality.
0: Can I ask you, um, like based on that, and I saw some of your, your tweets that you put out, and I think there's, there's one angle that you, uh, you've picked up on that I haven't really seen anyone else talk about, and that's um, you know, how you kind of see this UAE-Israel deal um, as a potential cover to change the status quo on the Temple Mount, Haram al-Sharif. Could you unpack that a bit and explain that to us?
1: First of all, this is something very specific and a radical change in the status quo on Haram al sharif the Temple Mount, uh, and with a potentially devastating impact. If you will look at the deal, the deal of the century, the Trump plan, um, there's a sentence that says we will continue to maintain the status quo. And in the following sentence, Haram al sharif the Temple Mount, no, Temple Mount, Haram al sharif the order is important, will be open to prayer of people of all faiths. Well, the status quo, and I'm quoting Netanyahu, this is the definitive definition of status quo when it comes to access. Uh, The Temple Mount is a place of worship for Muslims and a place to visit for everybody else. And this blatantly opens the door to Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount, which has been uh, increasingly one of the banners of the ideological right in Israel and the evangelical right in the United States. When this was exposed, uh, the reaction in the Arab world in January was such that the administration had to walk it back. And uh, David Friedman, in a press call, uh, basically said we didn't really mean it and it will only if it's agreed upon and it's not going to happen anytime soon and if anything and it may not happen at all, That should have uh, put things to rest. However, if you look at the single document that has been released regarding uh, the Israel Emirates, Uh, um, normalization process, it's a joint statement signed by Trump, uh, the Emirates, and Israel. And it basically says Al-Aqsa Mosque will be a Muslim place of worship. Everything else will be open to all worshipers. Uh, From the uh, Israeli perspective, Al-Aqsa is a building it is not as some in the Muslim and Arab world assert, it is not the entire esplanade. And according to the declaration, the UAE unwittingly, I'm convinced that this was not done um, in, in collusion with Israel, basically opened the door wide for Jewish prayer on the Mount. That's the only way of interpreting what's written in the statement. And uh, if you do look on the web, we have posted um, uh, we have posted our analysis. And there's an article today in 972 which goes into greater detail.
0: And, and of course, it's worth stressing that the question of Jewish prayer on the, on the Temple Mount, uh, Haram al Sharif, is is often a trigger point for for tensions and escalation in Jerusalem. So how worried are you that this could stick and actually create, you know, as you said, a new precedent and actually increase further the potential for something to go pop?
1: First of all, this is a national and regional security issue. And I think that the Emirates unwittingly embroiled themselves in something that would cause them harm. This is not going to go unnoticed in Arab public opinion. Uh, Already, um, social media and Arabic is awash with this story. The Temple Mount traditionally has been the location, the spot where a spark can ignite a broader conflagration from the torching of Al-Aqsa in 1969 by a mentally disturbed Australian, Michael Rohan, to the events in Sukkot of 1990 with 20-plus Palestinian dead. There is the Western Wall Tunnel, which uh, the opening of which sparked the first round of organized violence between Israelis and Palestinians, and it was under the watch of the very same Netanyahu. And then, of course, we have the Sharon visit. What we've been witnessing in Jerusalem in general and the Temple Mount in particular is the ascendancy of those faith groups that weaponize religion. This is not a harangue uh, saying keep uh, uh, God and religion out of Jerusalem. That is like saying keep culture out of Florence and finance out of Manhattan. But those who are on the ascendancy have claims to the city which are absolute, exclusionary, and incendiary. They are not only in the ascendancy, they're in power, because policy in Jerusalem is driven by the Temple Mount movement, or at least a a large impact, and the extreme settler organizations, and policy in the United States is driven by the end-of-days evangelical base and rapture mongers like Secretary of State Pompeo this is dangerous. We are on a trajectory that will eventually lead to an outbreak of violence. We need uh, cool heads and steady hands and we don't have them in the White House and we don't have them in the Prime Minister's office in Jerusalem. We need help from friends in order to make sure that the situation does not careen out of control.
0: This is probably a good moment to to pivot into the, the bigger picture and really dig into, you know, your views on the future of Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, because it seems from what you're talking about and also, you know, my own observations, as has been other people, it's, you know, that this so- so-called Oslo peace process has really uh, come apart at the seams. Whether that was, you know, a result of uh, what's been happening this year, or maybe it happened, you know, years ago, depending on who you talk to. But certainly, it seems that the, the current a peacemaking model no longer really holds water, and you know, you yourself, I think it's fair to say, you're quite an outspoken advocate for for two states. You're very keen to get, you know, your perspective in terms of, you know, a, where do you think this is all heading? Can we, you know, we've seen the the, the expansion of Israeli settlements in in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. You know, granted, we haven't seen a de jure, uh, the de jure, uh, application of Israeli sovereignty. Nonetheless, there's a sense that you know the the Israeli-Palestinian egg has become almost impossible to unscramble and so you know from your perspective as someone who really works on the ground do you think that a two-state solution is still achievable you know can you still draw that you know a a long sought after border between uh, Israel and the future Palestine?
1: You're really asking two questions that I would like to disaggregate them. Uh, one has to do with the objective, and the other has to do with the means. How do we get there? In terms of the objective, I am firmly opposed to what I call the two-state agnosticism. I follow every settlement development in and around Jerusalem, which is the core. I can define with you with precision for you what it will take to arrive at a two-state solution. I have no illusions. Uh, in 2009, that number was 115,000 settlers who would need to be relocated in order to arrive at an acceptable border to both Israelis and Palestinians. That number today is 180,000 and it's going up between six and 7,000 every year. If Israel has the will and the capacity to relocate 180,000 settlers, the 2 state solution lives. If we don't, it's dead. Israel today does not have the will to relocate one settler. And we have a government hell-bent on making sure that uh, the enough a critical mass of facts on the ground will be created, that that will no longer be possible. But I would call the question of one state, two state, dead and deader. I have no illusions of the two-state solution being in beach. I think. I will not live to see it. But I also think it is historically inevitable. I have one area of expertise, only one. And it's not even Jerusalem. It is the mechanics of occupation. I've been dealing with occupation on a daily basis for the last 29 years. If your occupation breaks down, bring it into my shop. I'll know how to fix it. I'll know how to oil it and change the pistons. I know how it works, what makes it flourish, what slows it down, what stops it in its track. There is no way of ending occupation except by means of a border. And if you destroy that possibility, you do not create an alternative. I can envisage a path, perhaps not in my lifetime, when Israelis will cede power, and sovereignty to Palestinians. I cannot envisage any potential trajectory where Israelis and Palestinians will share power without first establishing a border. Now, this comes to the second question about how to get there, because they're interrelated. Antonio Gramsci, the Italian Marxist, said uh, the old world order is dying the new world order is struggling to be born. This is the time of monsters. I am recommending to be a fanatic in adhering to the objective of the two-state solution and radical in the ways of pursuing that. American leadership and brokerage of this conflict was a failure many years before Trump arrived on the scene. Trump delivered the death certificate. Today, there is no platform for addressing permanent status issues that is acceptable. That will be one of the major challenges of a Biden administration, should there be one. But as my friend Khalid El-Gindi says, another round of American brokered negotiations is like getting a floppy disk with Windows 95. And no matter how many times you poke it into the USB port of your laptop, it's not going to boot the damn thing. We don't know how to proceed. It is clear there is no status quo ante we need a new paradigm and that paradigm in that paradigm american leadership is critical and american monopoly is destined to fail we need to put together parts of a puzzle that will create a, a new paradigm knowing full well that achieving two states is not a possibility but what we will hopefully be able to do is to generate a process that, number one, will engage in creeping deoccupation, will demonstrate that the world and international community is hellbent on ending occupation and concrete steps are being taken to do that, that the international community will act in unity on this issue. A message has to be sent to the Israeli public that will pierce the armor of our denial. We mean business. And it pierces the armor of despair on the Palestinian side. We mean business. It can't be done on the cheap. How do you convincingly put Jerusalem back on the table? The Americans aren't going to move their embassy out of Jerusalem. Why should they believe Uh, an American broker who basically acquiesces to taking Jerusalem off the table. Okay, open a consulate. You think that's going to be enough? That is not the price of admission. It can't be done on the cheap. My recommendation would be in the brief period of time uh, between the November elections and the potential inauguration, should there be a new president and should Trump be willing to uh, leave the White House to use that period... To bring all of the policy planning people together in the key uh, capitals of Europe and to, number one, reassert the primacy of two states, deflect in an intelligent and non-abusive way the two-state agnosticism and creeping or galloping one statism and to examine ways in which a credible political process that addresses the core issues can be regenerated to such an extent that the parties at some point in the foreseeable future will resume negotiations.
0: If I can um, pick up on a, a few things you said and, and unpack that in the, the time that we have and and there's one specific issue i'd like to push you a bit more on and and i hear what you said about um, you know how one should approach the future of the two-state solution and the way you you've explained it is it's a, it's a function of both you know i suppose physics and politics so it's drawing that border but then also having the political will to be able to make the required uh, uh, territorial adjustments and withdrawal of settlers
1: it's also tactical let me just intervene here quickly. It's tactical. Look, the world order is in shambles. We will be confronting scorched earth, uh, um, not only on Israel-Palestine, uh, the transatlantic uh, uh, alliance, NATO, Russia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and there will need to be a period of reconstruction. This is not the time to dabble with creative ideas. What are you going to do? Are you going to revoke Resolution 181? Are you going to vote for resolutions 242, 242338 and 2334? There's one international consensus that remains. It's tattered. It's what we have. Don't abandon it. This is not the time for dabblers.
0: Because I suppose, you know, I would never want to speak for Palestinians, um, but certainly there is a, you know, as you're aware, a sense in some quarters that that two states is no longer possible. And again, I hear what you say, uh, but nonetheless, a, you know, sometimes a concern that if two states is not possible, we could be, you know, uh, whipping a proverbial dead horse. And so I suppose the question is, again, going back to what you said, you know, your point is that at the moment it's still possible. But can you ever envisage a moment where it no longer becomes possible, and we're forced to to pivot towards a, another uh, set of demands? And so you've you've written quite a bit about, and and uh, quite regularly ring alarm bells when it comes to what you call the potential for, I suppose you call them doomsday settlements uh, in E1 near East Jerusalem and Givat Havatos. You know, is that you know with construction there in those very sensitive areas? Would that, in your view, uh, you know, cross a line in which two states is no longer possible or increase the, the political capital required on the Israeli side to make the required withdrawals completely unattainable? Like, does Danny ever give up on two states? I suppose is the question.
1: The answer is no, okay? The head of our Mossad has said uh, that Israel confronts only one existential threat to our existence. In this generation, it's not the Iranian nuclear capability it's not um, 120,000 Hezbollah rockets, it's perpetual occupation. Israel will end occupation, or occupation will be the end of us. And I am by no means ignoring the absolutely devastating impact that occupation is having on the Palestinian people and the Palestinian national uh, enterprise. We are, there is only one way to end that occupation, and it's a border. We know that that border is politically impossible. I believe it's historically inevitable. I consider uh, my goal in my remaining days is to do what I can to bridge the gap between the politically impossible and the historically inevitable, knowing full well I will never live to see success. But there is no alternative. One state is a mirage. I speak with the young Palestinians. I love them. I work with them. And I ask them, show me how it's done, even theoretically. And I've never heard an answer that came anywhere near to be convincing. I understand their despair. I understand why they are so skeptical. But it doesn't change the basic realities. Occupation
0: ends in a border. So, I mean, just to push you a bit more. So like, what would be, you know, what would uh, a Danny Saderman uh, press release? or what would be your talking points? If, you know, if there was construction in in uh, Givat Hamatos and Iwan, you know, I'm really focusing on that, but from, you know, from the perspective of EU policy, that has also been a focus in terms of, and you yourself have been really pushing this policy in terms of, you know, avoiding at all costs construction in those areas. So does it just, you know, increase the political, the political, as I said, the political price that a future Israeli government will have to pay, but we continue pushing and soldiering on. And, and if I just add, you know, you know, if you look at it in terms of territoriality, you know, if you look at the 2007-2008 negotiations that, you know, revolved around uh, the Annapolis Peace Conference, and, you know, one of the main sticking points, by all means, not the only one, but one of the main sticking points was an Israeli uh, refusal to contemplate the evacuation of Mali Adumim. So mm-hmm. you, know, you could make a counter-argument that actually that, that territorial, you know, if you look at it from a purely, purely territorial point of view, you can make an argument that, that Israel has already crossed that Rubicon, perhaps, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when it established Mali Adumim.
1: It's clear that the approval or the issuance of tenders in Givata Matos and the construction in E1, which is a year or so away at the earliest, would exponentially raise the cost of implementing any future uh, deal between Israelis and Palestinians. I think you are misplacing the emphasis when you talk about mal is possible to create a border in which there will be a corridor, between Maled dumim and Jerusalem in a way that does not have a devastating impact on the geographical integrity of a viable, contiguous Palestinian state. E1 will destroy that. But again, no construction is irreversible. It's only a question of how many rounds of convulsive bloodshed will be needed in order to uh, bring Israelis and Palestinians to the one possible state of equilibrium where we can both live in this tortured land.
0: That clarifies. That was uh, what I was sort of trying to, to grapple with. And I suppose in the, the the few minutes that we have left, it would be it was quite important to get from you a sense of what, especially the the EU and Europe can do. You've touched a bit about it uh, early on in our conversation. You know, I think basically. Um, you know, your sense that I suppose this is a very comfortable uh, situation for Israel and, and, and the lack of impunity, I suppose. Not that I want to put words in your mouth, but I suppose that was kind of what you're getting at. You know, could you basically sum up a bit kind of what, what are your, your policy uh, requests at the moment of the EU and European governments? And what should they be doing, I suppose, you know, in the, in the, the, the next few months before US elections? um in terms of you know whether it's holding the situation and trying to avoid further um further breakdown on the ground and then kind of what would be uh, the policy asks um of a i suppose of a future biden administration or trump administration mm-hmm. uh, There's a lot to answer but if you um, if you have some thoughts on that
1: i think the role of europe is critical and i want to begin with something that uh, my friends in positions of authority uh, in European capitals um, don't fully appreciate. Europe on occasion succeeds. The tenders for Givatimatos have not been issued. The p- approval process of E1 has not proceeded. That is directly attributed. Attributable to a demarche of six member states of the EU and uh, um, a subsequent demarche of 15 member states of the EU. Um, Netanyahu knows that having the back of Trump, Orban, Duterte, and Bolsonaro is not enough. It's also a, lef- a lesson that when Europe engages, Accompanied by a message, we mean business, Israel, including Netanyahu's Israel, has no choice but to sit up and take notice. There is no way forward without uh, ratcheting up Israeli accountability. Israel Netanyahu is pivoting Israel internationally and domestically into authoritarian directions. Occupation is one of the starkest manifestations of that. Allies do not uh, undermine the values and the interests of other values. What we're doing is blatantly uh, in contradiction to international law. The EU doesn't do national law. The EU is national law. Without the EU, you will the, the, the member states will fragment and disperse. Um, two, there is the most important thing is think. This is a time to think. We need the equivalent of uh, George Kennan's seminal article, Mr. X, defining the uh, Cold War period of 1947 and the policy of containment. We don't know how the world works anymore, and we have to sit down and to figure out how can we develop a platform for engaging on these issues that has a better chance of, uh, of, uh, success than the failed policies of the last 25, 20, 30 years, um, is an alliance between sympathetic EU states and the Arab League to save the Arab Peace Initiative, to reinforce faith in the two-state solution, to suggest a platform, an expanded quartet. To engage, you know, Netanyahu has been engaged in policies of creeping annexation. That's continuing. Can we begin to fight back by taking uh, steps that are incremental or creeping deoccupation? I don't have an answer to this, but between November and January, it's imperative that the good people in the key capitals of Europe sit down, get together, um, give some Biden something to work with, and not leave things in shambles, and to come up with a number of policy proposals which may make it easier uh, for. Um, the resumption of a political process under a different United States.
0: Thanks a lot, Danny. That was, I think, a, an excellent conversation as as always with you and a lot of very valuable insight. And I feel you've you've left us and uh, and European officials with some homework to do over the the coming months. And I think you know I take away very much you know your what you were saying about I suppose the need for you know for a new paradigm and. And to, to move towards, or to push towards, uh, creeping deoccupation, as you put it. Um, so, so thanks again, and uh, look forward to seeing you in Jerusalem at some point.